You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast, indeed the last for 2021 and joining me on this occasion, as usual, is David Leach from ITK Services. David, uh, I trust you are well. I am well, Giles, uh, and and uh, busy uh, as we wind down. Uh, and it's great to have a special guest here from, I think, uh, the renewable energy industry's uh, favourite uh, favorite, uh, consulting advisory for market services firm. Well, I presume you're talking about ITK then, David, but um, no. <laughs> our guest today is uh, Kobad Bafangagri. He's the Global Head of Industry and Building Decarbonisation for Bloomberg NEF. Kobad, um, wonderful to have you on the podcast. Wonderful to be here. Thanks very much and uh, appreciate that, um, that little tip off there, David. <laughs> my pleasure and uh i as anyone will tell you i don't give away my compliments freely but i think uh so many people in the industry use bnef and it's probably uh more authoritative in my opinion these days than the iea pronouncements that's great well i'd hope so too and i'd agree with that as well so Kobat, um you were once the head of analysis for australia and you've now moved on to this global position of head of industry and in building decarbonization presumably that's something that's going to be built upon not just the uh, decarbonization of the electricity grid but also a radical rethink about the way these industries are structured and the technologies they use yeah that's right i mean if, you know if, if we're to get to net zero emissions um, not just in Australia, but globally, it's not just the electricity system. It's not just electric vehicles. We need to change the way we make things. Um, and it's a, often a surprise to people, but the production of basic materials, and which is what generally, what, what encompasses most of the, what we call industry sector for making of steel and aluminium and um, plastics and cement is responsible for you know, nearly a quarter of global greenhouse gas emissions. So it's a really big chunk and uh, we have to get that down to zero too. Mm. And, and would you include the scope too within that? So for stuff like aluminium, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about, it's a, a lot of it is to do with the electricity used in the production process, but is that 25% sc- scope one? Yeah, don't quote me on the, uh, on, on, on the pre- precision of that number. Um, I'm going ballpark here. Um, it's a big fraction, let's say it that way. You've introduced, um, you've completed two reports on steel and iron ore and um, green aluminium over the last couple of months. Before we get into the details of those, having actually done these reports, when you sit back and think, okay, we've got this decarbonisation goal, it's a must do, we've got to achieve a lot in the next decade and be net zero by 2050 at the very latest and preferably much earlier. Having completed these reports and looked into these industries in detail and the technology opportunities, are you confident that A, we can and two, that we will be able to um, to, to, to make this transition? I guess this will, uh, do the technology exist? And we will, will we actually get our act together to actually make that transition? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question. You know, I, so I came into this role two years ago and, you know, went from basically being a power guy to, um, to having to learn about these new sectors and they seemed all um, very difficult and very different. And over the, you know, the course of the last two years, I have been pleasantly surprised that there are a whole bunch of commercially deployable solutions to either radically reduce their emissions or get them on the path to decarbonisation. And then that there are also uh, zero carbon pathways and production routes uh, that are either very close to commercialization or just, you know, or on track to be commercialized by the year 2030 or 2035. So on a technology basis, we basically have the technologies we need to decarbonize most of industry. We can produce green aluminium actually relatively easily. It's one of the easiest heavy industries to decarbonize. The technologies are known in order to transform the steel industry. Um, petrochemicals is a bit harder, but there are a whole variety of technologies under development to do that. And we could turn to sort of, you know, old fashioned ideas like deploying carbon capture and using bioplastics if, if none of those end up working out. The, the trickiest, most, you know, sort of the hardest one, which we can't confidently say we know how to do yet is cement. Um, but by and large, it's a fairly good story that if the will was there, the political will was there, that industry can deeply decarbonize and many of the big industrial sectors could get down to zero. Mm. I'd like to uh, just, you know, observe that it's, as an analyst, it's always a, such a challenge, but also a pleasure to analyse a new industry and to get out of your comfort zone and to learn, to learn basically uh, so much uh, new stuff. And there's a heck of a lot of uh, chemistry and stuff that goes into these industries. And although I'm sure we're going to talk about cost and lots and lots of people do talk about cost, uh, what I think is often forgotten is that there is a market for things that have a higher cost, but a perceived or actual higher value. So that I've made this point a couple of times, but at some point during the year, I hosted a chamber of or uh, compared a chamber of Swedish Chamber of Commerce uh, presentation where one of the guys on that from Sweden had held in his hands the hybrid steel. Uh, and um, which is which is fossil free, and he remarked that f folks industry was falling over itself to buy it, and they didn't really care about the the cost. It was the the, the perceived value of of being uh, clean and green that that was of interest at that time. Yeah, that, that that's right. There's a lot of momentum, and um, customers are asking for it, and and so there there aren't yet formal markets to for green steel or green aluminium, but they are in development. Uh, some of the biggest uh, consumers of materials like auto manufacturers, Apple and technology makers, high-end building uh, developers are all clamoring uh, for green products as the, as you know, as climate change has become front and center in, on people's minds over the last year or two. So. Yeah, that's that's one of the really um, positive and encouraging things that that gives uh, me hope that uh, we're going to uh, make some good progress on on industry. 
It, it's interesting. So BHP, uh, or the, sorry, Blue Scope, um, down in Port Kembla, my understanding is that they've got a pot line to replace sometime over the next three, five, seven years. So they're going to be making a big decision. Um, what technologies or what alternatives are there open to a, a company like that? And do you get any sense that they're about to embrace those new technologies? Because it is a major decision for them. Is the technology present and ready enough for them to make that decision? Are they minded to actually do that? Yeah, so the uh, Australian steelmakers are are in a tight spot, actually. So there, there are only two big, what's called primary steel or making fresh steel, or virgin steel um, plants in Australia, but Port, Port Kembla, the Blue Scope one and Wyala. Um, and, um, Australia is a tiny steelmaker on the global stage. We're, you know, hard to even see the slither on the chart of global steel production. So um, most people don't spend much time thinking about it. Um, by dint of me being an Aussie, I do. And uh, the easiest thing, and, and the real, the, the clearest transition path for the steel industry is to move towards hydrogen. And the reason why hydrogen is very compelling for the steel industry is that there is a technology that is already uh, in operation today to, that makes about 8% of the world's steel um, called direct reduction, which today is powered by natural gas, but can almost just be switched over to use hydrogen. And so the the technology is already there to make steel completely, almost completely emissions free if you can get enough hydrogen to power that direct production facility. And it's very compelling for the steel industry because it offers a stepping stone. So if you're a steelmaker like Blue Scope, the, the, the best decision to make if you're committed to getting to net zero in the near future would be to build a hydrogen, a natural gas-based direct reduction plant. And as hydrogen becomes cheaper and more available, you'd begin to switch it over. And you can, you can blend it in partially. So if you know, you've, you've got enough to do 10% of your fuel supply with hydrogen, you can just blend that into the natural gas stream. And over time, you can transition. So it really gives steelmakers a seamless, really smooth path with with, without much technology risk, with the optionality to be able to use natural gas um, until you get hydrogen at scale, and um, and also an immediate emission saving because natural gas-based steelmaking is already you know close to half the emissions intensity of coal-based steelmaking. So it's kind of it's a really compelling path pathway. The struggle for someone like a blue scope steel is that natural gas in Australia is expensive and hard to get. So for them, that what would otherwise be an almost no-brainer decision about what do I do? I've got an investment decision coming up you know, in, in the near future, but it's about 2030 for them. Um, all of a sudden becomes much more difficult here because you've got a problem with gas. Okay, but can I can I just switch around from uh, from Australia steel making, which is tiny in on world scale, 
because I'm interested in uh, the bigger pictures here. And I guess the, it goes to the efforts, I suppose, of the, the world's big steel makers, which are, you know, China and, uh, and Japan and, and I guess India. Uh, um, and also, but vitally to what it means for Australia's iron ore industry, uh, I think you've mentioned that basically uh, uh, DRI, direct reduction, works a lot better the more iron there is in the ore that you're reducing. Uh, maybe we could just, uh, you could just talk about that global picture. Sure. Yeah. So th th this is a real interesting ramification for Australia. So um, that most people tend to agree that if, if the steel industry gets to net zero hydrogen is going to play a big role. Um, and, uh, you know, most, most forecasters sort of say it's going to be 50% or more of, uh, of the virgin steel that's made will come from a hydrogen based pathway. And that hydrogen direct reduction needs a higher quality ore than what we currently produce out of the Pilbara. So there's two major grades of ore that benchmarks of, of iron ore and that, you know, got to do with concentration. So, um, Pilbara ores are about a 62% concentration of um, iron in the ore. And our major competitors for export seaborne iron ore, Brazil, produce it at 67%. And for hydrogen, well, for even natural gas-based direct reduction, or if you're going to do hydrogen direct reduction, you need a 65% minimum. So currently the Australian ore doesn't cut it. And if the world begins to switch over to hydrogen-based technology or even natural gas-based technology as that stepping stone, then Australian ore is going to have less demand and Brazilian ore would have more. Or what, you know, could that would then lead to is that you're going to have a complete disruption really in the iron ore market because you'll have this demand for higher quality ore, which typically costs more, and that could open up new reserves in new countries, like Russia has lots of that high quality ore, India has that high uh, quality ore, even China has some of that high quality ore in a different form. So it could really start to shake up actually the, the global iron ore industry. Um, and that really throws down the gauntlet to Australia that if we're to continue to be the world's biggest iron ore supplier and the steel industry is pivoting towards hydrogen, then we've got to do something. We've got to upgrade that ore. I'll just, and... uh, I'll, I'll, I'll hand back to Giles in a second, but I just wanted to look at the other side, the actual demand for, for the ore in China, which is the biggest uh, customer in the end. I mean, they, they don't really, um, haven't shown that much interest in, in decarbonising steel, have they, as far as I would go. And I'd also just make an aside that Australia's been producing iron ore so fast uh, that I always look at ore reserves and wonder whether there's as much high-quality ore left as there used to be. But let, let's put that to one side and just talk about, you know, low-carbon steel in China just for a second. Yeah, so so look, the, the, the Chinese are, are actually doing a lot, but they do it very quietly. So, you know, when a Chinese big state-owned enterprise goes and builds a hydrogen pilot plant, which they are doing, uh, Baowu Steel, it's the biggest steel maker in the world. Nobody would have heard of it in, in Australia unless you're in the steel industry. It's not one of those household names. They don't put out a press release when when they 
decide to go and do a pilot plant. But not in doing... English. Not in English. Sorry, keep going. Yeah. Um, uh, but they're doing it actually, and that's one of the things that really struck us this year was that uh, of the industrials, and in particular in hi in hydrogen-based um, plant, China is um, surging, and it's going to take over Europe in the next year. Uh, because the big Chinese state-owned industrials are just throwing tens, hundreds of millions of dollars at at, at pretty big uh, pilot and demonstration plants. Um, even though the government hasn't put in place policy to force them to do that, they're getting on with the job. Um, whilst European and you know, you know Americans even much further behind are waiting for the government to set the policy and cross the I's and dot the T's. They're drawing up really good plans, but they haven't made the investment decisions yet. The Chinese are getting on with it. So actually, there's a lot of progress there. Hmm. I'm actually quite interested in getting back to the iron ore producers in Australia because one of the people driving the debate and certainly the talk and um, the announceables about green hydrogen is, of course, Andrew Forrest, who's one of the big three um, iron ore miners. So what are the implications um, for the iron ore miners like Forrest? I mean, do they have an option to find and produce better ore or is this pivot to green hydrogen all about basically protecting the future of his business by, by getting the hydrogen part right? I think historically Forrest has actually had uh, Fortescue's had lower, slightly lower quality iron ore than either BHP or Rio, but I, I might be wrong about that, Kevin. Hmm. No, th that's my understanding too. Um, and uh, Australia does have some reserves of the of the higher grade ore, but you know what we produce out of the Pilbara, which is the majority of our exports, is the, of the lower grade type. Um, and so the, the the they're basically looking into it. CSIRO and you know universities and the and the major iron ore makers are now realised that this could be a big problem and so they're looking at what they can do now you can upgrade the ore but that's an energy intensive and it, it it increases your cost base so you know the question is can we upgrade that our ore um, within the the price difference that exists for that higher quality ore. And in which case it would make sense and we'd do it and we'd continue to make money, maybe a little bit less. But if we can't, then we're going to be structurally out of the money. So there's a bunch of innovation and investigation that needs to happen there. It's too early to say what's going to happen. Um, and only really people have started to become wise to this issue. Uh, but um, it's, uh, it, it's a big challenge. It's mm. a big challenge. Now, um, for Fortescue themselves, like you know, I, I definitely think the synergy between hydrogen and and iron ore and steel making is uh, important to them. But actually, what FFI are, uh, are talking about doing is becoming just a massive clean energy and clean hydrogen producer. So it's not all about then you know capturing the value chain and also producing it the steel. They're they're also just looking to become a big player in hydrogen production. So it's interesting, you know, when I look at uh, stuff BNEF wrote earlier in the year about hydrogen demand going from 70 to, say, 700 million tonnes over time, actually the amount that's required in, in, in the industries that you cover, steel and, uh, and the like, is actually relatively low. It still seems that the amount of the maximum, uh, the big volume users of hydrogen are actually going to be transport, I presume, shipping and aviation and and you know that last ten percent of the power generation. Well, they could be. I mean, when it comes to thinking about how much hydrogen is used, it's all a bit of thumb in the air stuff. Um, if 
if transport um, fully decarbonizes, then you know heavy trucking, if if fuel cell vehicles, you know, capture a good, you know, let's say 50% share, and that's very debatable, then that would end up consuming a lot of hydrogen. And if you use hydrogen for balancing a power generation, um, you know, to get that last mile of decarbonization, then again, that actually ends up being a really big fraction, but there are contenders in that space. Um, so it's not at all a fait accompli that uh, hydrogen would be the, will be the tech winner. Um, I, I think there's more confidence that hydrogen is going to play a big role in the steel industry. Um, so there's been quite a lot of, uh, um, uh, you know, of alignment and investigation and, and sort of path setting along that, uh, along that trajectory. But we don't, we wouldn't be talking about even a hundred percent of steel. I mean, uh, it, coming back to Australia's guys, maybe you'd be better off just building more EAF stuff, electric arc furnaces and, and letting someone else do the, uh, do, do, do the hard work. But I mean, just staying with the global picture and thinking about hydrogen, if all of the steel uh, went went to this way, DRI, and it couldn't all go that, all of the virgin steel, would would, would it be off the top of your head, 50 million tonnes of hydrogen? Um, it, it's def- it's tens of millions of tonnes. Um, I, up to the top of my head, I look, I can't remember what, it, what the exact figure is. Um, I think it is around 50 million. Um, but, uh, I mean, you mentioned sort of, um, EAF electric dark furnace and recycling pl- plays a big role right? in, in any future scenario of, of, of the steel industry. Recycling is the first thing you do and you can make that recycling hundred percent green by just powering the existing electric dark furnace technology with renewables. Um, so I, all the scenarios count that that gets ramped up. Um, but you still need to produce, um, virgin steel. Uh, because the top line demand uh, for steel will continue to grow as you know more of the world develops. Uh, so there's going to be a role um, for for hydrogen in there somewhere, and it could be a large fraction. I wonder if we can move on to green aluminium now. Just tell us um, just very briefly what the situation is in the world, um, what you mean by green aluminium, I guess, um, what the opportunities are and what the implications are with the opportunities for Australia. Yeah, so what I mean by green aluminium, uh, that's an interesting one because that's all debatable. Um, you know, that there haven't been standards yet set for um, what is green, is it? 50% cut in emissions, is it 100%, is it 90%, you know, so um, I, I won't get into that quagmire, but um, what we essentially mean is that you, you know, you cut as much of the uh, emissions as is um, uh, technically possible when we, when we uh, use the phrase. And aluminium is one of the easiest things to decarbonize because it's already an electric process. Uh, the majority of emissions from making aluminium are from generating the power. And um, you could switch that over today to 100% renewables uh, via a PPA. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, you can't power an, an, an aluminium smelter with a wind farm. Well, you don't need to. The, there is a derivative market. There are these things called PPAs where you can virtually procure all of your power Sorry to interrupt, but I mean, it's already been done. Norsk Hydro does this effectively uh, in, in, in Norway, and then they firm it up with some hydro. I mean, it's not actually that hard at all to do that, I don't, uh, don't think. 
No, it, 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 it's not. And more and more companies are doing that because there is a real demand for, for green aluminium. So um, Apple is a large procurer of aluminium. It's in you know, all of the iPhones and iPads. And uh, they've gone to their suppliers and they've said, I want 100% green and I'm not going to pay you any extra for it. Um, but just, you know, because of the, their, their buying power, they're able to sort of try and drive that bargain. And lots of um, customers are saying, I want green aluminium. So the, the industry is already beginning to shift, but driven by demand, but also driven by economics. I mean, we know that renewables are cheaper than coal in um, many markets around the world, particularly if you want to build something new, almost every market, um, but even against operating coal in more and more markets now, uh, you know, building wind or solar is cheaper. So there's a natural economic-based shift towards renewable power procurement. This is my, this is my favorite, favorite theme, you know, that Australia can actually will outcompete China on energy intensity again uh, because renewable energy is cheaper than Chinese coal. I think that's that was very true this year. Uh, it may take a few more years for it to become fully true every year, but but I'm sure it will. But I think uh, we, we, it's, it's an obvious story on the renewable energy for the smelter. And, but there are two additional pieces to this puzzle. One is using the smelter itself to provide the firming uh, uh, via basically reducing its output when, when renewable energy is scarce. Uh, and the other one is about the carbon anodes, where I understand you were talking about uh, a new process that Rio and Alcoa are developing in, in, in Canada, Elysis or something. What's going on there? That's right. So, um, so about fifteen uh, percent of the emissions of making aluminium come from the anode. So it's a chemical reaction where the, the uh, carbon-based anode degrades um, as you're zapping it with electricity, and uh, you can make an anode which doesn't release carbon um, and uh, and also doesn't degrade as much. That's so called an, an inert anode. It's being developed by Rio Tinto and it should be commercially available by 2025. It, it's not an, a technology that's easy, easy to retrofit. Right? So if you've got an existing aluminium smelter, it's pretty hard to then convert that to an inert anode. But as the fleet churns over and you build new smelters, you could transform the whole fleet to use these inert anodes. Um, I, and if you can't, then you basically could use offsets or direct air capture, um, which is, uh, got a lot of potential to fall in cost to sort of mop up the the outstanding emissions from the anode degradation. So um, there are, you know, that the, there are all these pathways that you could use to get, um, firstly, quite easily to a 70% um, reduction in emissions intensity from making aluminium, and then eventually down to 100 um, through deploying this new and better tech um, or, you know, mopping them up with offsets. It, it's, I'll phone back to Giles, but I would observe that smelters have been set up, any, the, the ones I, managers I talk to are very conscious so that they've designed their existing pots, uh, pot lines to be maximum efficiency, you know, to run uh, on as little energy as possible, but to run flat out. And it, it is expensive to retrofit them to, to change for ramping uh, down and back up again. And as you say, re changing the pots out to put different kinds of anodes in the pots, it's not a, an easy decision. No, th th those are the harder things to do. Um, but 
I, you know, the, you can make those down the track because you've got this easy first step, um, which is such a big one. Sorry, on flexibility, I forgot forgot to talk about that. That's right. There is there's a technology as well called NPOT, which basically insulates that um, the pot line of an aluminium smelter and gives it the ability to be a little bit, bit more flexible. So you could modulate down um, 10, 10 or so percent of your load for a number of hours without affecting the production process. And so then there's a little bit of flexibility, which helps to reduce the cost of procuring green power, um, uh, you know, when eventually you want actual 24 seven green power. Well, given all these developments, um, Kobad, and thanks for those excellent sort of summaries, um, what's your sort of assessment of where Australia is sitting then in terms of its opportunities, in terms of its, in terms of its politics? Where should we be or what are we capable of doing um, in terms of emissions reduction, how that sort of fits into sort of the global, the global shift? I mean, you're an acute observer of what happened at, um, at, uh, in, in Glasgow. Um, what's your observations of the Australian political scene at the moment? And uh, I've got another question to throw in there too. I know it's about a triple barreled one by now, but um, you've been working in the energy space probably longer than I have been. Um, you know, what's your reaction to some of the extraordinary sort of assessments that we've seen of the renewables transition in Australia? I'm thinking of AEMO's um, 82, uh, its, uh, its latest uh, draft ISP, um, the Labor targets, which are right up there, 80% renewables by 2030, right about the same place that um, AEMO is now assuming in its um, step change plan. Even the coalition is assuming 69% in its rather modest emissions targets. Um, not too sure where you start answering all of those, but uh, pick your own point. <laughs> yeah, well, let me start with that. I mean, it, it, it's good that everyone else is catching up. Um, <laughs> and, and in particular, um, you know, AMO, uh, who have traditionally been um, pretty conservative on their projections of how fast the electricity system will transform. Um, it's good to see them actually now uh, having better information and, and, and charting that that tr transformation is going to occur more rapidly and could even go much faster. So, you know, it, five years ago, we were saying that we're going to get towards 50% renewables based on economics alone um, by the year 2030. And that's still sort of the base case, right? If, if the government mm -hmm. can, you know, frustrates the development of renewables, um, you know, props up coal, you know, as far as it can, I think we're still going to get to 50% by 2030. And there's the very real, um, possibility that these you know 70 and 80 percent scenarios come true because the economics of running existing coal-fired generators is just so challenging in a high renewable power system um, and that's that's actually the fundamental change driver is that and this is something you know I was banging on about five years ago but coal is inflexible and will get killed um, as more and more solar um, rooftop solar in particular just gets forced in the grid by um, by all the punters out there, and um, you know, uh, cold inflexibility will, and this whole paradigm of baseline becomes a liability. So, um, that the power system transformation is on, and it's a, just a question of how fast it goes, and whether we support that to go very fast or we frustrate it. Mm. And um, you know, my observation would be that you know we're still sort of in this. Um, cat and mouse game in the Australian, um, you know, policy environment of um, some of the states looking to support it and the federal government by and large looking to frustrate it. 
I mean, if you look at the you know Energy Security Board and their you know NEM 2025 um, design package, you know, my observation there would be that uh, despite their probably their best efforts to remain um, impartial, they've they've clearly been browbeaten by the federal government into uh, you know coming up with a set of packages that just doesn't consider emissions. I mean, it's it, to me that's unfathomable. You know, how how can you be talking about the security and reliability of and and affordability of the power system without considering the energy trilemma? Cheap, clean, and reliable. It's a three-legged stool. If you forget one of those legs, the thing falls over. And they're still not accounting for that leg because it's politically too difficult. And I, you know. I, I... I think one of the things about the ISP that needs to be said again is that it looks for a doubling in demand and all of this efforts to introduce new supply are so much easier when demand is growing. And of course, from the federal government's perspective, they think the only way to grow demand, frankly, is through hydrogen uh, and but and hydrogen is the sort of pot of gold at the end of the rainbow that that might come off, but it it certainly needs a lot of work. Whereas the other levers to increase demand, uh, like for instance in electric vehicles, are, are right in front of us here today. And it's only you know there's more demand than we can actually give supply for. There was a second um, uh, go at the Hyundai Ionic 5, a second shipment, which once again, however many there were, I don't know this time, but it sold out within three hours. I mean, the demand for electric vehicles is enormous, frankly, just like the demand for green steel. It's just exceeds supply. And this is where some more policy, I think, uh, could help the electricity industry enormously, but I'm talking too much. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Totally agree on that, on that front that, um, electrification of the economy is um, going to be actually the most important uh, route and the biggest contributor to, to deep decarbonisation, whether that's electrifying transport or that's electrifying more of our heat production in homes and moving away from natural gas or, uh, you know, electrifying industry um, from all the way from low temperature heat for, you know, making, um, making widgets to high temperature heat for you know, some of these much bigger industrial processes, electricity is going to play a bigger and bigger role and that's going to drive demand up. Um, and then hydrogen is, um, you know, hydrogen is another big slice of the, uh, of the pie, but it's actually one of the most expensive ones. And it's, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a classic example of a politics trumping um, logic and economics that, Everyone is, you know, very happy to talk about hydrogen and supporting hydrogen because it's fallen to this um, favourable, you know, uh, position of having the support of both sides of politics. But lower hanging fruit for um, decarbonisation, like EV deployment and heat electrification, is still sort of, you know, in the too hard basket. Mm. This irritates me, and you know we'll get round to talking about exporting hydrogen next next year. But all I can say is, when you're going to have a liquefa liquefaction plant, if you want to ship it to Japan, uh, it's you're going to be using another uh, twenty or thirty percent of renewable energy needed to do that, and, and another huge whack of cost. Uh, but but we'll get there. Giles, over to you. Well, yes, yeah, so probably just time to wrap up. Maybe some final thoughts for what was um, most interesting through the year. Um, I do want to make some um, a, a brief uh, clarification 
um, from last week when we were talking about the connections process and the investment in the grid and the response to the ISP. And uh, we did get a, um, an email from Chris Bowen pointing out that um, Labor had actually responded quite favourably to the uh, draft ISP issued a couple of weeks ago and actually has a quite a specific policy of investing $20 billion, creating a new fund and $20 billion of infrastructure investment to help the rollout of renewables. And um, just sort of further to that, um, David, we also saw the AEMO and the Clean Energy Council come out last week. I mean, there's two things that need to be done. One is actually build enough grid to accommodate all the new grid wind, solar and storage. And the other is to revise some of the rules around the connections process. And they've actually done That's been so frustrating to so many different people over the last couple of years and has forced even some big players out of the market. But they have actually seemed to be making real progress on that. And particularly in the simplification of the, say, the registration process, this introduction of something called batching rather than sequencing. So they'll actually connect things together rather than one by one. And that takes out some of the uncertainty about the timing. And third is just clarifying and actually grandfathering, I think if that's the right word, um, the rules around battery storage. There's so many wind and solar farms in Australia at the moment. And many of them would like to add batteries storage to their businesses because, I mean, guess what? Some of them are experiencing negative prices and so maybe a battery now works, but they're just not even daring to go there because they'd have to rewrite the generating generating performance standards. And that's a whole minefield and probably just not worth their effort and actually talk now about actually giving them a grandfathering so they don't have to go through that process. And that sounds to me quite sensible. Look, I think underlying it's the usual thing. Progress doesn't happen in a straight line, but it kind of happens. Uh, and we have seen terrific uh, technical progress this year, particularly in, you know, my theme at the start of the year was grid forming inverters. Uh, and we've run a number of podcasts on that topic with people who talk about it. And I think you can see the acceptance uh, of, the, of how that will get away from some of the other problems that would otherwise have required us to keep coal generation around for longer. Uh, I, 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 in regard to what I said last week, and it really Chris was complaining about me, not you, Giles, let's be, uh, let's be honest here. Uh, I guess my theme for this coming year will be to get greater political uh, push uh, for the ISP, uh, whichever government is in power to do that. It's great uh, that the Labor Party is supporting the ISP, but uh, we still don't see enough of it in the mainstream media, this, this concerted push and support, particularly around uh, the social licence that's so incredibly important, whether it's wind farms, solar farms, uh, pumped hydro, uh, possibly national parks or not, transmission, should it go you know, through national parks, the, fantastic amount of actual disruption of everyone's lives and that we need to get the population to agree on to actually achieve it. Uh, and this is where it really does require a big effort uh, from everyone. I don't want to talk too much. And so that's really what uh, I'm on about. No one would doubt for a second, in all honesty, that it's the Greens are the, are the most green, that Labor is, is, is certainly beats the coalition on, on decarbonisation. But I have to say, that's not exactly something that's going to qualify you to win the Premier League or something. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like beating the bottom of the league doesn't actually make you a champion. But uh, I, I've got no doubt that in the real world, uh, a lot more can be done. Yeah. Kobad, um, some final thoughts from you, maybe. Um, maybe you can offer some thoughts about what surprised or excited you about this year or maybe what you're expecting next year. Yeah, so, I mean, the thing that surprised me most this year and and pleased me as well was actually the speed of change in China. So, you know, we uncovered uh, that 
the pipeline of Chinese um, companies building electrolyzers is you know three or four times greater than than what's happening in Europe, where there's you know uh, um, where Europe has traditionally been the leader, but the Chinese are just surging ahead, and um, that gives me hope. You know, there's a lot that can be said about um, the Chinese system of government, but one of the one of the benefits is that they get they get things done very quickly, and um, just because the uh, the Chinese president has set a net zero goal. Chinese corporates are falling in line and they're devising plans and they're starting to invest and they're figuring out how to do that. So, you know, to, to bend the emissions curve, we need to fundamentally, you know, uh, address the growth in emissions um, that has come from China. And there's, there's really good uh, indication that that will happen. Um, you know, the other sort of note that I touch on is that, you know, Glasgow has, uh, and, you know, the UNFCCC process in Glasgow has, you know, finally got us on track more or less for a two degree uh, world. And that's a good story. But now the, the effort is on flattening that curve down to get us closer to safer and safer climate territory. So can we get from a two degree world to, a, you know, 1.75 degree world? Uh, and that's the challenge for everybody who listens to this podcast is, you know, how do we keep tightening the screws, uh, you know, pulling on that ratchet um, in, in all ways in our domestic politics, in our, in our companies, in the technology that you create um, so that we can bend that curve and flatten it to, um, to get onto a safer climate pathway. Giles, just before we finish, at least from my part, my last word for today is two things. <laughs> one is uh, that Toyota, which has been one of the most uh, resistant to electric electrification of its vehicles, has suddenly decided uh, to to go much stronger on it. And I expect that having made that, this, that's a fundamental change that will only grow from here on in. And the second thing is a far more mundane, but the New South Wales government, which is very active, as you know, in uh, uh, getting renewable energy up in the state has just released its transmission uh, design access rights scheme for the Irana and other renewable energy zones, uh, which is something that the technical nerds will be studying quite hard over Christmas uh, uh, after, after the turkeys are worn off. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, look, I'd just like to wrap up this episode, uh, not just for today, this week, but also for the year. Um, it's been a great pleasure doing this podcast with you, David, this year. Um, thank you to all the guests that we've had um, over the ones, and particularly also to our last guest, uh, Kobad Bhavnagri from Bloomberg NEF. Um, great to have you on board. There's been more than a million downloads of this podcast over 2021, which is just fantastic. We're very grateful for your support, We're very grateful for your feedback. We are very, very grateful to our sponsors um, all throughout this year, Pylon and Evergen. Uh, it's just been fantastic. Um, very loyal su um, supporters. We hope you come back next year. Um, if you don't, if anybody else is interested, do drop us an email. Um, but David, um, all the best for the Christmas break. All the best to everyone out there listening. And um, I think the plan is, Dave, we're going to come back at the end of January. Uh, I, I, I guess so. I too would like to thank our sponsors. I'd like to thank our listeners for putting up with us rambling on and occasionally making mistakes. And I'd like to also add my thanks to the many uh, incredibly well-educated, well-informed and uh, 
uh, guests that we've had this year that have uh, made decarbonisation and electricity and energy uh, topics that, that uh, have gone from uh, the back pages to the front pages of the newspaper and, and we can all uh, sort of understand and see what a difference it makes, not just in the energy industry, but I think to Australia and the world's economy overall. Excellent. And once again, thanks very much, Kobad. Um, thanks also to our producer, Anne, for um, your wonderful work all throughout the year and also the people further yeah. in the background doing um, the social media and the other distribution, Sam and Emily and all the other people that worked on the podcast and also the Renew Economy and the Driven and One Step Off the Grid websites. I think there's one more episode of Solar Insiders coming out later this week, so do look out for that. It'll be the best and worst of the year. Um, having said that, Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Kobad. Thank you, David. Thank you, Anne. Thank you, everyone. And we'll be back at the end of January 2022. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant generating significant value for consumers, network operators, and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost, and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.